Well, the year is AD 61 or 62, and the Apostle Paul is in prison, as you just heard him mention. He's in prison in the Roman Empire in Rome uh, for preaching Jesus Christ. It's towards the end of his life, the last few years of his life, and he writes this endearing letter to the church in Philippi. The church of Philippi was the first church that Paul founded in the continent of Europe. And the letter that he wrote, we can see very deep, very strong affections that he has for this church in Philippi. We can see a very special and unique relationship that he had with this church in a way that was different than the other churches. When we read the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia or the church in Corinth, we can see a lot of Hey, get your act together. Uh, Paul's saying, you guys are really off on this stuff or you're, you're drifting in this area. Let's come back to uh, sound doctrine or let's stop living in sin and let's pursue righteousness and holiness in Christ. This letter is different than those in that this letter never even mentions the word sin. And this letter that he wrote to the church in Philippi has 14 times mentioned either the noun joy or the, ver the verb rejoice. The overarching theme and thread through the book of Philippians is joy. Now, not only joy, but we also see the word gospel mentioned nine times. The good news about Jesus Christ is mentioned nine times. But here's the main dots that we want to connect in a letter that Paul just over and over and over talks about joy and having joy in them and rejoicing and saying, again, I say rejoice over and over. All this joy and rejoicing has got to be connected to the fact that this very short letter also, four chapters for us, this very short letter mentions Jesus Christ 40 times. So when you're looking at a letter where Paul is just elated and expressing joy, joy when he's thinking about the Philippians and joy in Christ, not letting it just breeze past us the fact that this letter, the epistle of joy, the letter of joy is anchored as a joy in Christ. This is a letter again, to the church in Philippi. This is a city in uh, the ancient Roman Empire. Now, Philippi was in what at that time was a region called Macedonia, but is today modern Greece. And the city of Philippi was on the Ignatian Way, which is a road of the Roman Empire that was a highly traveled road. Think like I-10 going from east coast to west coast, uh, going through major cities like Houston. And Philippi was a very wealthy very prosperous, prominent city in the region that had this main road that ran through it, that ran straight through the center of the city Philippi. Now, also it's important that we know that Philippi uh, is a city that in 42 BC, so about 120-ish years before this letter was written, uh, there was a major Roman battle over the city of Philippi. And uh, the Romans won that battle, and the emperor at that time then designated the city of Philippi to be a Roman colony where they would give land and give property to GIs, essentially, to soldiers and, and military personnel who served Rome faithfully. So Philippi is a Greek city, but by and large, it is dominantly Roman in influence and in perspective, and also 
extremely patriotic. And so this is a, a, a culture and a community in Europe that Paul then goes by the leading of the Holy Spirit to begin preaching the gospel to. So having said that, since we're going to focus on the book of Philippians today, let's open our Bibles and let's turn to the book of Acts. You got it. Somebody caught it or saw first service or listened to my Facebook live post from earlier in this week. That's right. Before we get into the book of Philippians, we want to paint some more background here of this church so that when we're reading the letter that Paul wrote to Philippians, we have more of a framework to understand things. So let's go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Uh, this is the book that uh, Luke wrote, trying to give a faithful account to the early stages of church history in the first century. So Acts chapter 16 and starting in verse 11, it says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, which was a little island in between the two mainlands, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. There's a summary of all that stuff that I just told you. We remained in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So we'll pause there for a second. Paul is saying, we're in this city of Philippi and we get there and it's the Sabbath day. And we went outside the gate. Again, remember this being a Greek city that was also a Roman colony. At this point, there was no Jewish synagogue in this city. There was nothing like that pointing to uh, the Hebrew God. And so Paul's general strategy, I mean, it changed as the Lord led him. But generally, when Paul would go into a region or a city or an area to begin preaching the gospel, he would usually start by going to the synagogues and preaching there and debating even those who were preaching the Old Testament or the law, the Hebrew law, he'd start teaching the gospel there. And this city didn't have that. So they went outside the city, out the gate, to a close river that was near Philippi. And it says they perceived, they saw a group of women there that they perceived to be God-fearers. God-fearers was a term in this day that was used for people that were not Jews but came to faith in the Jewish God, and they feared that God. So Paul walks up with Silas, who's with him, and they had already picked up Timothy. Timothy. So the three of them, they're walking, they go out the gate, they see this river, and it says they see a place that they saw was a place of prayer, and they see these women gathered there praying. Essentially, they're busting up this women's Bible study. So they're going over there. That's, that's a modern overgeneralization. But they see these women there praying, and they go up to them, and Paul begins to faithfully preach and teach the gospel and begins to reason with them and try to explain to them why they need faith in Christ. So let's continue on here. Uh, Sabbath day went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Now, as we're about to read this chapter 16, there's kind of three cameos, three vignettes, three characters, if you will, that are highlighted in this chapter. The first one we meet is Lydia. 
from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. There's that phrase, worshiper of God. Other translations would say a God-fearer to help us understand a little bit about this. Now, it's important we keep in mind the book of Acts is a book that that Luke wrote trying to make sure that he very intentionally gave us meticulous details about things that he wanted us to see, know, and understand. So when we read about this woman named Lydia, and he points out, one, she's from Thyatira. So she's an Asian. She's from Asia Minor. And Thyatira, like Philippi, is much of a uh, metropolitan city, a massive city in the area of that day in what is now modern-day Turkey. Remember, Asia Minor. So one, she's Asian. Two, then he points out what? That she is a seller of purple goods. Okay, who cares what her job is? And not only who cares what her job is, that she sells things, but why does it matter that she sells purple goods? Well, the thing that Luke would want us to know from that is that she was very, very, very wealthy. See, in that day, in Bible days, purple dye and things that were made purple, uh, the purple dye was very rare and hard to get and therefore very expensive. It was only collected by uh, gathering sea mollusks, you know, sea slugs, and uh, compressing them, and they would secrete a purple dye. And that's how they made purple cloth and purple linen, purple textiles. And it was hard to get, and it was rare, and therefore it was reserved purely for only royalty or people who had a lot of money. So what is Paul, or sorry, not Paul, what is Luke wanting us to see about Lydia? One, she's Asian. She lives in Philippi. Two, she's very wealthy. Think fashionista. We're talking Coco Chanel or Kate Spade or Vera Wang. Don't ask me how I know those names because I don't own any of their products. Uh, You don't have a Kate Spade bag? No, I don't. Um, But think that type of person. Someone who also probably still had a home back in Thyatira, definitely from Scripture has a a home in Philippi. So we're thinking one of these fashionistas like someone who has a home in both cities. This lady is wealthy. She is of status and reputation. Even the fact that her name is mentioned in ancient Near Eastern literature shows there she has some status. She has some reputation. She's white collar, wealthy, and uh, living the high life. Back in verse 14, one who has uh, heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. That's the other thing that Luke wants us to see, that this is a woman who, uh, even though she was Asian, somehow, somewhere along the journey of her life, was taught about or exposed to the Hebrew God and became a worshiper of that God. But she had not yet either heard about Jesus or been convinced about Jesus to where she did not worship Jesus Christ. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord, continuing in verse 14, notice this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, who opened her heart? The Lord, God. God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So again, 
Paul comes up to this group of women who are praying and studying and discussing, and he comes in and he starts preaching the gospel to them. He begins reasoning with them and explaining to them that, hey, this God that you've heard of, this God that you've gathered together right now to pray to, this God that you're worshiping, he actually sent a Messiah, Jesus Christ, who died on a Roman cross. You're pretty familiar with Rome and you're pretty familiar with the cross. Sent him to die on a Roman cross so that he could pay the penalty for our sins. And by that way, we having faith in that Jesus Christ could be reconciled to God where he welcomes us back into his family, no longer holding our sins against us. Thanks be to God. He begins reasoning and preaching, preaching to these women. But it's important. Whether he's reasoning or preaching, who opened Lydia's heart? God did. See, it is God who opens the heart and mind to believe. We have this account right here where there's a woman of status, probably very intellectual, probably very educated, that God or that Paul begins to teach and reason with, and God opens her eyes, opens her heart to understand, receive the gospel, and believe it. And there are other times in scripture where we can see that it is God who initiates this, whether by someone teaching or whatever means that someone comes to the information of the truth, it is always God who begins that good work. We can see uh, in Matthew, or I'm sorry, John chapter six, Jesus one time says, listen, no man can come to me unless the father or unless the spirit draws him. He's saying only, only it is the work of God who begins this, who does the drawing, who begins the, the saving work. I can also take you to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, in a different way, he says, when I came to you, Corinthians, he says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquent words of man's wisdom, but I aimed to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He's going, I'm not coming to the Corinthian church with philosophy and apologetics and all these deep debates. He's like, I've come to you and I just told you guys about the cross and how Jesus died for your sins. A little bit different than what we would have seen here where he's reasoning with these women and God opens Lydia's heart and, and then she begins to come to faith in Christ. There's a group of women here and Lydia is the one who is highlighted. Then beyond that, we could turn to a chapter later in Acts chapter 17 where it's, again, it's not like the Corinthians where he just preaches a real simple gospel and they come to faith. He goes to Thessalonica and goes again to the synagogue and he starts reasoning with them, giving uh, thorough cases and, and giving examples and evidence as to why the resurrection is true. All throughout scripture, especially in the New Testament, multiple times we see God opening people's eyes. We see God saving people and bringing them to faith whether through someone's intellectual preaching and debating or whether it's just through simply telling people, hey, Jesus Christ died for your sins and God loves you, keeping it more on the simple side, no matter which way it came, the important thing that we need to pay attention to is that it is God who opens the heart and the mind to believe. That's why it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, this is a thought we're going to get back to towards the end of the message today, but keep that in mind. So there's the first cameo. We see Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and picking up in verse 15. And afterward, she was baptized and her whole household as well. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, 
come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I guess they arm wrestled or something. No, that's the terminology they would have used to say she convinced us. And so she convinced us to stay in her house. Remember, Paul, although he's a missionary traveling and telling everyone the gospel, telling everyone about Jesus Christ by trade, he was a tent maker. So he travels all around, probably staying in tents all the time. And this night, he's probably with his group staying in the penthouse of uh, Philippi and Lydia's home. She was very wealthy. It was probably a very nice place to stay that night. So our first cameo, our first situation here, we see Lydia. What does Luke want us to know about Lydia? He wants us to know that she's Asian from Thyatira, that she is really wealthy and prosperous, and that she was someone who had knowledge of God, was aware of God, but did not have faith in Christ yet. And God opens her heart to believe, and she comes to faith in Christ. She's baptized, goes home with the apostles, tells her entire household, her family, her servants, and they all come to faith, and they're all baptized. That's the first cameo we want to see and kind of put away for now. Let's continue reading in Acts chapter 16, verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, so this is the same location. They're going back to where they were the other day. We were met by a slave girl. Now, this is quite a different circumstance, quite a different background than Lydia. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. This girl was possessed by a demon. And this demonic force gave her certain abilities to tell her information about people. Yikes, this is creepy, eerie stuff. And this is one case in the New Testament. I could refer to plenty in the Old Testament to let me just say, do not seek counsel from mediums. Uh, from psychics, from tarot, all that kind of stuff. Scripture says that's not good. And so this girl right here, she had a spirit of divination, brought, brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So unlike Lydia, Lydia is elite, white collar, wealthy status. Now we have slave girl who is oppressed and exploited and used for the profit and gain of these couple of men. She's being used. And so this is absolute polar opposite end as far as you could get in the spectrum from these two characters. So she's telling fortunes. And not only that, verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. I love this part. Paul having become greatly annoyed. <laughs> like, girl, enough. Paul having, I don't know why, for whatever reason, it didn't annoy him enough the first day. I don't know. Several days she's doing this. And remember, this girl's a Greek. So she doesn't know the Hebrew God. She doesn't know scripture. She doesn't know the way of salvation, but this demonic force, and remember many times in the New Testament when Jesus was preaching, the demons knew who he was and they would declare who he was. And Jesus several times would be like, shut up. It's not my time for people to know that yet. And so this girl possessed by a demon, even though she doesn't know the truth, doesn't know scripture, she's not acquainted with the word of God, not acquainted with the teachings of the Hebrew God, is able to, under the influence of this demonic spirit, walk around declaring, 
these men declare the way of God. They're declaring the way of salvation. And finally, after a few days, Paul's like, all right, that's enough. I'm tired of this. And what does he do? Verse 18, and this kept going on for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to what? Said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. That's terminology they would have used back then to say it happened right then. So Paul, we had Lydia, intellectual, upper class, wealthy, who Paul begins teaching and reasoning with, and God opens her heart to pay attention, and she comes to faith in Christ. And then we go to this poverty-stricken slave girl who is oppressed and being exploited that Paul gets annoyed with, (laughs) and then says, this is enough. Come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. There's no reasoning. There's no preaching. There is no theological background, no doctrine. Paul, with the authority of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, says enough is enough. Get out of her in the name of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit leaves. Now, this is where the girl's story ends in Scripture. We don't have more detail, more information on what happened to her or the aftermath of her story. But for being a girl who was possessed by demons, who's walking around declaring that, that these men proclaim the way of salvation, and being a girl who in that moment, the Apostle Paul says, come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and that spirit leaves, I'm willing to bet that she came to faith in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I'm willing to bet that that miraculous display of the power of God through the Apostle Paul brought that girl to saving faith. And we don't have a count of that, but I think that's a safe assumption to make. So we have Lydia, wealthy, status, acclaim. Here's reasoning. And God opens her heart. She comes to faith. Then we have poverty-stricken, slave girl, oppressed, exploited, who has a display, miraculous power of God, sets her free and brings her to salvation. That's cameo one, cameo two. Now let's keep reading in verse 19. It says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Remember, these guys are making money by, by people would pay them to get their fortune told. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, magistrates were, anytime there was a Roman colony, there were two magistrates designated to lead that colony. They were the rulers and authorities present on behalf of Rome in that colony. So, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. What's he doing there? Remember, We're in Greece, but we're in a Roman colony. He plays the race card. Not that we want to go there, but they're saying, these men are Jews. They're in our place. They're messing us up with with their customs and their way of life. He goes on to say, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. (laughs) They're Jews. We're Romans. They're not lawful for us as Romans to accept for practice. And then the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And so they're tired, they're they're frustrated, they're like, 
we don't have a way to make money anymore through this girl because of what Paul just did. So let's take them and uh, let's get this taken care of, bring them before the magistrates. Listen, these guys are in our area, these Jews, they're messing up our way of life. They're trying to tell us that we need to do their stuff their way. This is a Roman colony in Greece. Uh, who are they? And the magistrates go, uh, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, take them out, beat them with rods, and then throw them in jail, which I personally believe is pretty harsh, but that's the way things were done that day. So verse 23, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer, pay attention right there, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And so, one, let's pay attention and remind ourselves, us comfortable Americans, that people 2,000 years ago and even still today were being beaten and, and tortured and imprisoned. Why? For faith in Christ. And it's really far too easy for us to take that lightly and just read that and breeze past that without thinking, man, Paul, Silas, and Timothy's not mentioned here, but he was with them as well. These guys took a physical beating with rods. It says they received many blows. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not interested in signing up for that. But they so believed in the message of the gospel. They so believed in what God had done in them and wanted to take it on to everyone else and to the regions of the world, following the command of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Which that, that reminder that I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, is something that had to be their anchor in moments like this. When they've gone to an unfamiliar region and territory where Christianity is not okay. And they're going to be beaten and thrown in prison. I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. And we know, we see they were beaten, they received many blows, they were thrown in prison to the inner sanctum of the prison. And then also beyond that, that they were fastened in stocks. Now, when we think about stocks, we tend to think, you know, the head and hands hanging out and all the cartoons that we see. Stocks in the Roman Empire were very different. They would bend and twist and contort the body into a way, uh, into shapes and positions that were very uncomfortable and then leave you there for hours even days sometimes, so that you would cramp and you would have seizing pain um, and that then your body would be manipulated and you would have major issues uh, coming out of that. It was major pain, major uncomfortability. That's the situation that they're in. Let's keep reading verse 25. About midnight, middle of the night, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Now let's remember, they just got beat. And now they're in prison. And they're in these stocks in incredible discomfort and pain. And what do they do? You're never going to let, you're never going to let me down. You're never going to let, you're never going to let me down. Can we do that? Can we do that? I mean, 
We, we, we get frustrated with our neighbors and we're like, why have you forsaken me, God? These guys are in bad condition. And they're praying and they're singing praise to God so that all the rest of the jail could hear. And they're probably going, all right, you want to put us in here? We're going to get everybody in the jail saved. You think you're winning by beating us and throwing us in prison? <laughs> you didn't know we serve a sovereign God who might just want to save everybody in this jail. And so they're singing and praising God, praying at midnight, verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. God, in a miraculous display of his power, in the middle of them praising God in this awful circumstance, shakes the earth to where the doors fly open and their bonds are broken off of them. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. Remember, here's our jailer. This is our third cameo. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, what does this tell us, tell us about this prisoner? Remember, we had wealthy status Lydia, who was reasoned to. We had poor slave girl, who had a display of the power of God. And now we've got this random blue-collar worker, prison guard, Roman soldier, who has found himself in a circumstance that is uh, between a rock and a hard place for him. Because these guys are sitting there at midnight, singing and praising God and praying loud enough to where the whole jail heard, which means this guy heard also. This guy heard that they were praising God, and all of a sudden this guy would have felt the ground shake and seen the doors fling open. And all of a sudden he's gone, oh no, earlier they told me to imprison these guys and to keep watch over them. And now it's open, and they're going to escape. And I'm the one responsible. And he pulls out his sword and gets ready to take his own life. This guy is bound to his duty. He's a patriot. Because think about this. He could have easily. It's midnight. His bosses were not there or awake, probably. It's midnight when this happens. He could have gone, I'm in trouble. I better get out of here and flee and run away and try to hide and try to assimilate into some other community or city or culture. But he doesn't do that. He's so faithful to his duty that he goes, I botched this. I guess this is it for me. And what happens? Verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. We're still here, bro. Put the sword away. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Remember, he heard them singing, heard them worshiping, heard them praying. And then all this stuff happens. So he comes in there and he's like, we're all here. And because of all that stuff happened, which this is another display of the power of God, falls down at the feet of Pete or Paul and Silas, and, said, uh, and says to them, well, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's in fear and trembling before them because their God obviously is working on their behalf. And he's like, what do I got to do? 
Guys, what do I got to do to be saved? Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set, set food before them. And he rejoiced. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I want you to consider for a moment this guy's life situation. His livelihood is in jeopardy because these guys who he was given to put in prison and watch all just got free to where he's going, I better take my life because I'm about to be in trouble. And they come in and they say, dude, hang on. We're still here. And he's like, what, got, what do I got to do to be saved? And they say, man, all you've got to do is believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. And he goes and they go back to his house and they preach the gospel to his entire family. They're all saved. And this dude comes to faith so much so where he recognizes, he sees Paul and Silas differently now where he feels compelled to wash their wounds and then to feed them and love them and care for them. And his whole family gets saved and baptized. And then it says what? That he and his household rejoiced even though the most practical circumstances were looking really bad for him and his family so they rejoiced because they had believed in God can could we could we rejoice in those circumstances there's our three scenarios we've got Lydia the Asian who's wealthy prosperous status. Paul reasons and teaches and the Holy Spirit opens her heart to believe and to have faith in God. She comes to faith in Christ and is baptized. Her whole household gets saved. Then we see this slave girl oppressed under demonic oppression as well as exploited for gain and by the power of the God, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the apostle Paul says come out of her and she comes to salvation that day and then another spectrum we have this blue collar worker the roman guard who's watching the jail duty bound a patriot faithful to his country who goes I've messed up I've got to do this and find salvation in Jesus Christ that day where Paul then goes and explains things to his, his family. All three of these, very different. This is the birth of the church at Philippi. If you go to the last, chapter, or the last verse in this chapter 16, you'll see that after this, after they got out of prison, they went to Lydia's house. And as we get deeper into the book of Philippians in this series, we're going to see that Lydia's home became this location of the church of Philippi. And remember, when Paul writes this letter to the church of Philippi towards the end of his life, it's 10 to 15 years after all this stuff has happened. We've got the Asian wealthy, we've got the poor slave Greek girl, and we've got the blue collar Roman worker who's just trying to have a good day and has a case of the Mondays that ends up being a case of the Sundays. And God takes all three of these with their different divisions, 
their different backgrounds, their different races, their different socioeconomic situations, and he unites them in Christ to birth this church that would be an endearing, loving, faithful friend to the Apostle Paul. We see that the gospel unites people of all races, classes, and divisions under Christ. How great, how magnificent, how powerful must this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ be if it could take all three of these people from different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different circumstances, different situations, and bring them into faith in Christ to become the family of God in the city of Philippi. This letter that Paul wrote 10 to 15 years later, there's a really good chance that by the nature of who these people are, that this church continued to grow over that time with more Greeks, a lot more Romans probably, and maybe even some more Asians there that maybe Lydia had connections with. We see this church that not only are they bound together in Christ despite their divisions, despite the different things. And listen, listen, I don't at all want to to belittle this or downplay this, and I don't even really want to go here. But you think racial tensions are bad in 2021? This is a day and age where they all openly hated each other. We live in a day where most people, most people are going, racism is bad. This is a day where they would go, those people are dogs. And they'd be happy to say it and not scared to say it. This is a day where there were strong divisions, strong divisions of worldview, strong divisions in loyalty, strong divisions in politics, strong divisions in class as we see right here. But God is so good. The gospel is so powerful. Jesus is so wonderful that he transcends all of those divisions and unites us all in Christ Jesus, to be a united family in him. What a glorious gospel to where people could then go, man, we're one. I can't help but think of that passage in Galatians chapter three, where Paul talking to the Galatian church says, there is therefore now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. All these excuses, all these reasons, all these things that we have to pit us against one another, the gospel comes in with the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, whereby he says, I'm not just reconciling Israel to myself. I'm reconciling Gentiles. I am here to save the whole world and make before me a people of God from every tribe, every nation, every race, every tongue, every background, every circumstance to where we in 2021 in Sheboygan Falls with different classes, different backgrounds, different races, different circumstances could come in here and sing praise and glory to the same God united in faith in him. How good is God? Amen. Where we could look at one another with love. Where we wouldn't let these things separate us anymore. 
where we take our opinions that are so strong that we try and work against. Guys, can we refuse the work of the enemy that's been happening in 2020 and 2021 whereby Satan is trying to turn us against each other and go, no, you know what? The cross is greater than our divisions. Nope, Jesus Christ is more unifying than this stuff that is pitting us against one, each, one another. Jesus Christ is the eternal God of all things that supersedes our government, our politics, our worldview, and he unites us in him with love for one another. So let's go to Philippians. I know we're running short on time and we're not going to read too deep. We're only going to read verses 1 through 11. But I wanted us to have a picture of this church that started 10 to 15 years before Paul writes this letter of endearment and warm love and affections for this church. Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, that's the church leadership. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's standard greeting to anyone he writes. He's saying, the grace of God to you and peace with God. Verse three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, uh, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day 10 to 15 years ago until now, it's clear God has been working in this relationship with Paul and the Philippians all this time. Here comes one of my favorite verses, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. Who began the good work? Do you remember? Who began the good work? God did. He's not saying I did it or anyone else, not Paul, not Apollos, no other, but he who began, God, our first point this morning was it is God who opens the heart and the mind. He said, he who began, that same God who opened the heart and the mind to bring you to faith, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, God is not done with you. God is not done with you. To this church of Philippi who has been faithful and strong relationship supporting Paul for 10 to 15 years, they had sent him financial gifts. They had sent him uh, supplies through uh, a guy from their church named Epaphroditus who we'll read about in the coming days. Um, they had cared for him and loved him in prison in the Roman Empire. If you were in prison and didn't have someone outside who would come and take care of your needs with finances and food and bring it to you, you die because they don't take care of you. It's not like today where you get three steady meals. And so this church would take care of him and others would bring him supplies and bring him money and so that he could continue to live. And to them, he's saying, listen, that same God who 10 to 15 years ago, that same God back then who called out Lydia and opened her heart to believe, that same God who by the power of the Holy Spirit says, come out and save that slave girl, the same God who shakes the prison cell and then teaches the, the guard all you got to do is believe in Jesus Christ. That same God who began that work back then will be faithful to complete it in you. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. 
What does that mean? That's the term that's used all throughout the New Testament at the day of our Lord, meaning the day that Christ returns. So, Paul is saying to all of us, hey, if you think that you're not not there yet, if you're frustrated with your spiritual growth and maturity, listen, God is going to complete that work in you. Stay faithful. He's still working in you. Don't be discouraged. I'm confident that he will complete that work that he began in you, and he's going to complete it at the day of our Lord. This is the same exact letter where Paul later in the chapters three and four says a whole lot of stuff like, guys, listen, I haven't achieved it yet. I haven't arrived If there was a dude who could say, I think I've got it figured out, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of our New Testament. But to this same church in Philippi who he says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Later he goes on to say, I haven't arrived, I haven't achieved, I press on towards the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So to all of us, this verse, 1-6, gives us either the call of do not be discouraged, encourage yourself in the fact that God is still working in you, will still be working in you, will still be maturing you, will still be sanctifying you until the day of Jesus Christ. And to those of us who are going, yeah, you know what? I've been in this faith for a while. I've done Bible studies and I've led Bible studies and I'm in such and such, and such uh, you know, leadership position or whatever and I've uh, you know, ministered to a lot of people. I feel like I'm doing pretty good. He says, until the day of Christ, you are still growing. I haven't arrived. I haven't achieved. But God is not done with any of us. If there's still breath in your lungs, you are still on mission in this earth. You haven't arrived, and God has work for you to do. Paul's writing this at the end of his life. And he says, I haven't arrived, but I press on. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. All these people with all their backgrounds, all their divisions. He says, I'm longing for you with the affections of Christ Jesus. In verse 9, and it is my prayer. He's what I'm praying for you guys. That your love may abound more and more. Again, remember, these are people of different classes, backgrounds, and circumstances. And he's saying, I'm praying for you that your love, they already had love for one another that was evident to him, that it would continue to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, meaning you would know the truth, have sound doctrine, and discern what is wrong or false teaching so that you may approve what is excellent, meaning you may endorse right belief. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness or the evidence of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul opens his letter saying, guys, I I, I long for you. I love you. I'm praying for you. I have such deep affections for you. I thank God for what he's done in your life, and I know he's going to keep doing it until his day 
comes. And I want to just keep praying for you that your love will continue to grow and abound more and more and that you would grow in your knowledge and discernment that you could prove what is excellent and that you would be able to say that, that, that sound teaching, that's truth right there. That's not truth. And that in all of that, that growing and abounding in love and having strong and sound discernment would also bear the fruit of righteousness, mean living a life showing others what it looks like to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that 2,000 years ago, these people, these characters, these individuals, these people that you wanted to highlight for us thousands of years later that you could show us your will and your way and you could show us the way that you would move and bring salvation God, I ask and I pray that you would let us, like that church in Philippi, be a church that, that, that loves and embraces one another, that sets aside divisions and casts down things that would come from the enemy that would try and divide us, but that we would, we would cling to the cross of Christ that unites all of us in faith in Jesus Christ, whereby we all have received the same Holy Spirit. God, I pray if there's anyone here today that, that has not come to that saving faith that these same three individuals did in Acts 16, that God, like you did with Lydia, that you would open their hearts to pay attention, to hear the truth, receive the truth, and be transformed by the truth of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for it. And let us be united together as one family, worshiping you with one heart, one mind. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.